Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marcellaro. And this week, my guest is Dr. Jacqueline Gill. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. For the listeners, Dr. Jacqueline Gill is an associate professor of paleoecology and plant biology, School of Biology, Ecology, and Climate Change Institute, University of Maine. Her research interests include paleoecology, community ecology, vegetation dynamics, extinction, climate change, and biotic interactions. I'm going to ask you about most of that in the second half of the show. So tell me about your early life. What did you want to be when you were growing up? Did you always want to be doing what you're doing now? So that's a fun question for me because I actually feel like I came to my field of paleoecology because I had a really hard time deciding what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, I've always loved the natural world. I moved around a lot as a kid. I'm uh, a military brat. My dad and stepdad were both in the Navy. So I did a lot of moving back and forth and got to see a lot of different kinds of ecosystems and landscapes, um, both inside and outside of the U.S. And that instilled in me a really strong fascination with the natural world. Um, but I've also always loved, you know, history and, um, communication, writing literature. So I really, um, I would say I, you know, I had my, uh, my, my marine biology phase, I think as a lot of, uh, young people go through, um, for a while, I wanted to be a photojournalist. Um, I wanted to be an actor for most of high school. And, uh, by the time I really figured out what I, what my real passion was, or at least what I could get paid to do that I also enjoyed. Um, I, uh, I found, I think I found a field that lets me do a little bit of everything, which is important to me. I have colleagues who spend their entire lives, you know, just studying one species of ant or one plot in one forest and, you know, they can really drill down and, and hyper-specialize and I'm, I'm just not that kind of a person. So I think my, my childhood and, and the very diverse interests that I've had um, growing up um, have served me well in a field that really requires you to be able to draw lots of connections and think uh, on a systems level. Yeah, it looks like your background was well-suited for a person who's going to communicate about science. Yeah, it does. It, it does help, actually. I, I find that um, being a frustrated theater major and also someone who loved, um, you know, who loves science fiction and uh, and literature, um, all, of, all of those skills, I think, have made me a stronger writer and communicator. All right. Now you've pressed my button. I got to take a detour here and ask you about your favorite <laughs> science fiction authors. Oh, my gosh. Um, that's a tough question. I have a hard time. You might have gathered already in the short conversation. I have a hard time picking favorite things. Um, some of my favorite authors, well, it, it, it's interesting because it varies. Um, I actually love, for example, Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, some of my friends have said, oh, he gets too much into the specific scientific details and, and spends a lot of time on, you know, you can tell he did a lot of background research and he wants you to know Hard all about science. it. Yeah, but I actually really love that. Um, or Neil Stevenson's um, Seven Eves, for example. Um, I really enjoyed that book. Uh, but I also really love some of the um, uh, like Afro, uh, Afrofuturist authors or or feminist science fiction authors like uh, N.K. Jemisin, uh, Ursula Le Guin. Yeah, I, I did read Anne McCaffrey growing up, um, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's there's a lot. Um, and, and I would say there's a lot of really great new voices in, in science fiction and fantasy, too, that I've been really enjoying discovering, too. Cool. A lot of my science guests grew up on science fiction, and it really influences their lives and their career. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing. I think it, it's hard to know whether we're drawn to science fiction because of our love of science, um, or if the if we're just drawn to these these fantastic worlds, and then that instills in us this sense of um, of exploration and creativity and wonder. Um, it's probably a bit of both. Speaking of exploration, I read that you were at a young age exploring caves in Maine, and that excited your interest in science as well. Yeah, it's actually kind of a coincidence that I ended up here, you know, for a job. Um, but my uh, undergraduate degree was at College of the Atlantic, and uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a very small uh, liberal arts school, about 325 students when I attended. Um, and it's located in Bar Harbor, Maine, which is adjacent to Acadia National Park, which is one of my favorite places on the planet. And so for us, our ecology labs would be climbing into a van and driving a few minutes down the road and exploring the park. And if you've never been to Acadia, it's this incredible, you know, I like to think of it as a poster child for ice age landscapes, these polished uh, domes of, of granite um, and these amazing boulder erratics left behind by the glaciers. And of course, these, this rugged iconic main coastline, we don't have a lot of sand beaches here. It's lots of, um, and just ocean surf pounding against these these big rocky cliffs, oh, like and yeah, yeah, very similar in a lot of ways. And um, and so there was this one memorable trip where we first started walking along the the modern day coast at Acadia, looking at these smoothed, polished surfaces as the ocean has just been beating up against the shore uh, and just kind of eroding and smoothing out the the cliffs. And then we hiked about 250 feet up a, a mountain called Gorham Mountain in Acadia and started seeing some similar kinds of features and eventually came across a, a, a sea cave that um, looked an awful lot lot like, or what was a cave that looked an awful lot like the sea caves we had just seen on the coast. And my uh, instructor, who was also my advisor at the time, you know, he walked us through this kind of very Socratic process of, well, what do you see here? What does this look like? Okay, well, if it looks like this was created by the ocean, how is that possible? We're 250 feet up in elevation, far from the shore. Uh, you know, what could have happened here? And eventually we got to this idea that, um, the story was that as the glaciers were retreating, the earth started rebounding um, as the weight of the incredible weight of this ice uh, was lifted. Um, you know, people don't realize that in places, the ice age, or during the last ice age, the glaciers that covered, you know, large portions of North America were over a mile thick in places. And that's an incredible weight. And it's actually enough to to push down onto the Earth's crust. And so as that ice melted, as it retreated back north, the crust has been slowly rebounding in many places. So the top of Cadillac Mountain in Acadia National Park is still getting a little higher year by year, millimeter by millimeter. And so, you know, this is a, a situation where sea level had fallen in this place, not because of you know, less ocean, but because the land itself had rebounded. And that moment for me um, was, it, it was just like this, this one moment where everything came together. This, I, I was really interested in conservation. I had grown up as part of the, you know, Captain Planet generation in the nineties. And so I cared about the environment. I wanted to make a difference, but I also had some questions about, you know, how we should approach this idea of, of conservation and a lot of what I was learning in my ecology class really emphasized that these landscapes that we live in 
are often more dynamic and changing than we appreciate. And so just thinking that, okay, this place that I'm standing on this trail in this national park was once at sea level and now we're much higher. And it's it's like I could see this movie in my mind of all that change over thousands of years. And that's when I really started to get hooked on this idea of how the past and understanding the past is an important lens for understanding the present in ecology, just as it is in history, right? You can't understand modern politics without understanding the historical past. You have to know where you've come from to know where you are. And the same is true when we're thinking about the environment. That's a very special talent. As a physicist, I tended to think in terms of pencil and paper and equations and relate that to some very abstract things. Hmm. You know, stars and radio frequencies and things that you can't really see. But for hmm. you, it's opposite. You look around, you see things in caves, and you say, "Why did? what is that? How did that happen? What's happening here? What visualization of change. It's a very practical, very hands-on thing. It's a very admirable thing and a great skill to be able to ask yourself questions about what you see in the natural environment. It, it, it's interesting because it's, it, it is very much driven by, you know, our, our, at least my interest in the past is very much driven by what I can see and observe and, and what concerns me in the present. But you and I actually have a lot in common, too, because all of the things that happened in the past are also invisible to us, right? We don't have time machines. Um, you know, there's no way for us to really, we didn't have people recording what was going on 10,000 years ago, uh, at least not in written form. Um, and so, yeah, but you've got you know, fossils and ice cores yeah, to look at. Yep. So we have these forensic tools, right? And so we're always piecing together an incomplete picture from, you know, from literally often the same tools that forensic scientists use. Cool. Cool. So I read that you took some time off after you graduated and went to London. Palmology? Uh, yeah, so I took, uh, this was actually during my undergrad, um, I took a, a two-week short course at um, the University College London uh, to learn how to use pollen, this, uh, the study of, of pollen for reconstructing landscapes. And in my field, and the, the originations of this, uh, this technique, um, we use pollen as a way to forensically reconstruct the changes in forests or grasslands or other kinds of plant communities over time. And so all these different plants that you might see out your window are producing pollen or spores and um, they blow around. Sometimes they cause you allergies. Um, and uh, But a lot of times they end up in lakes or bogs or other kinds of places where we can extract them, uh, identify them under a microscope, and then use them to piece together um, a picture of what forests look like through time and how they might change in response to human activity or fires or climate change or other kinds of processes that, you know, are also really relevant to what's happening now. And um, yeah, and like I said, this is, you've probably heard of a technique like this if you've ever watched a show like CSI or Bones or these other, these other kinds of um, fictional representations of forensic methods where they might say, oh, we found this kind of pollen that only grows in this one field. Uh, this is, you know, that's how we know the killer was here. Um, it's it's really very similar kinds of tools um, to, to what people have seen in, in TV shows, except instead of reconstructing a crime scene, we're reconstructing ecosystems. Do you use visual models, graphics and animation in 3D? Does that come into play? 
Sometimes, yeah. We it, it's really difficult. So th- thinking again back to your question about uh, abstract ideas and you know pencil and paper on uh, and, and equations, the most difficult abstract ideas that we have to represent is is time. Right? It's hard for people to wrap their brains around long timescales. Now imagine asking someone to think in four dimensions, right? If you think about the movement of a, of a tree species or the changes in a forest across space and across time, representing that in a graphical way can be really difficult. We, we've got some of our own conventions in my field for how we represent these kinds of changes through time. And they're not necessarily the most effective. In a lot of ways, they haven't changed in almost 100 years. And so people are, are starting to get a lot more creative with the ways that we represent our data. And in my lab, we're also starting to use things like virtual reality as a way to uh, communicate oh, these absolutely. kinds of changes absolutely. in an accessible way. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool because I think a lot of people think the Earth was the way it is now, always in the past. Yeah. And if you can do virtual reality or some sort of simulation that shows how the things have evolved, people get a better sense for the changes in the planet, whether they're desirable or undesirable. So that's cool. Yeah, exactly. It just makes it more real for people. And, um, you know, we're we're working, the, our challenge in my field is that we're often working with things that are too small to see without a microscope, talking about a past that's quite distant. And so we're really asking you to do a lot of imagination um, in ways that are that are not really native to our thinking, right? Um, we're not used to thinking on long time scales. A lot of us growing up, you, you might have uh, remembered having those little plastic tubes full of dinosaurs, and oftentimes they'll have you know, a T-Rex and a woolly mammoth in the same tube as though those were somehow connected. Um, it's like anything o- older than the pyramids gets all smashed together in time. And people just don't have a, a really good sense of time scales. And I think that um, that has all kinds of implications for our thinking in general. And, and I think sets us up for a lot of the problems we face as a society today. But um, trying to overcome that in a, in a way that's that communicates these kinds of changes to people in a meaningful way is definitely a communication challenge. I remember, well, first of all, I think it's great that you learned how to look at things and ask questions. I can still remember a seventh grade class where the science teacher took us outdoors and he had us use a stick to measure the elevation of the sun and figure out what time it was. Hmm. It was the first time in my life where I realized that I could actually go out into the real world and do a measurement and get something concrete, you know, from something simple as a compass and a stick. And um, that was a revelation for me. That was cool. I mean, that's really powerful, too, because it shows you that these, you know, these kinds of tools are, are accessible to you, right? You can be out there. You can be a scientist. And um, I think people often have this idea that science is only for exceptional people who have exceptional abilities, uh, the sort of lone genius model. And when in reality, the vast majority of our scientific discoveries um, happen you know, slowly by everyday people doing everyday things. How did you end up at the University of Wisconsin since you were kind of an East Coaster? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, so um, I had had a wonderful undergraduate advisor, John Anderson, who's still at College of the Atlantic, and um, his advice to me was, um, when I was thinking about graduate school, uh, because I, I didn't come from an academic family. Um, a lot of professors come from a long line of, of other academics, but I'm a first generation college student. And so I, I didn't know the first thing about 
how to go to grad school. And so his advice to me was just to read papers, uh, find the people who are asking interesting questions and doing work that excited me, and then to reach out to those people. Um, and so in my case, I I was doing just that. I was spending most of my senior year, just uh, or the summer before my senior year, reading a lot of scientific articles in paleoecology. And um, I happened to read about a, a, a cool paper by the, the person who would become my grad advisor, um, Jack Williams. And um, he was he was trying to answer some interesting questions about why uh, thir- around thirteen to fourteen thousand years ago, as we were coming out of the last ice age, we see these unusual um, combinations of trees in our North American forests that we don't find today. So the species are the same, but it's like taking a if you took a handful of Lego bricks and kind of mixed them into different assortments um, and and then tried to build something new that didn't, you know, wasn't like the usual plans that you were given. It's like mixing them from two different sets. Um, that's basically what we would see. And, uh, and there was just one little throwaway line in this paper about, um, well, you know, we, we think climate change probably played a role in these unusual or novel forests. Um, and though, you know, it's possible that these large now extinct ice age herbivores like mammoths and mastodons also could have played a role, but we just can't really test that. It's it's just not possible. And at the same time, I had also, uh, when I was uh, doing my undergraduate, I um, for my thesis, I was counting the pollen from a bog in Acadia, and I had found this, uh, I'd identified this spore that's from a dung fungus. So the spore has to go through herbivore digestion to complete its life cycle. And um, I was trying to identify what I'd found. It was very distinctive. And in this key, this guide to pollen and spores, um, there was just this little mention that, um, you know, it's associated with the dung of herbivores. And as I read his paper, my mind just instantly jumped back to that moment in the lab where I had read this little other throwaway line in a in a key, a guide, and I thought, well, yeah, we can test that. We can test it using these spores. Um, and so I, you know, I wrote him an email and said, hey, have you ever thought about using this method to to see, you know, what role these big herbivores might have had uh, in uh, in creating these unusual forest combinations? Boy, did you do that right. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's really just reading and thinking and being open-minded. And he, his response was, I haven't thought about that. It's a great idea. Can you come out next week for an interview to Wisconsin? And, uh, and I did. And that, that's wow. that. Wow. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah. And with that, we're going to have to take a short commercial break. We'll be back soon. Uh, I'm chatting with Dr. Jacqueline Gill, Ice Age ecologist. Well, folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds after this word. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI, CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up-to-date hardware and a next-generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in-country data protection requirements, while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are a native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. 
pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers, and pay for only what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy, maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash bgm. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com forward slash bgm. All new customers receive a $20 credit. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with Dr. Jacqueline Gill from the University of Maine. So, in part two here, let's get into some science. Tell me what a paleoecologist technically is. Well, uh, people have probably heard the term paleo, not not the diet, um, but uh, you know, associated with paleontology. Um, and uh, the idea is just it, it means the past. It's the study of the past. And so ecology is the study of different species on our planet and how you know where they live and why they live there and how they interact with each other. And so all we really do is we just do that, but in the past. And so we use the fossil record to study ecosystems and communities, species, extinctions, and how those species interact. So much of what you do seems so all-encompassing. I read, your, <laughs> I read your bio and I read your website, and there are so many things that are so incredible that you do, it's hard to get one's head around all of that. You also mentioned that you're a biogeographer. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because these two fields of paleoecology and biogeography have uh, intersecting roots. They go back. Um, they're some of our oldest uh, scientific disciplines. Um, biogeography is similarly the study of basically where life lives and the rules that govern that. So I think... Uh, you know, biogeography deals a bit with time, but also large spatial scales, and paleoecology deals with long time scales. I think I just like thinking, uh, you know, about big picture questions and large dynamic changes across space and time. You know, little stuff. <laughs> so many things that you study. What are some of the most interesting things you're learning about our ecosystem from looking at things in the past? I think one of the most there's there's a couple things. One I would say is that um, you know we often focus, and I often focus a lot on extinction in the fossil record. And one of the important lessons we have um, from the fossil record is that extinctions have consequences. And when you lose a species from an ecosystem, you lose all of the important things that that species does. Um, so you know, woolly mammoths when they went extinct, we lost things like seed dispersal, the different plants that they would eat, and and move the seeds across the landscape, um, the way that they would move nutrients around by eating in one place and pooping somewhere else, um, the way they would affect the, the forest communities by selectively choosing to eat certain plants versus others. Um, we think they might even have had a, a role in influencing the fire of, of an ecosystem because um, if you think about it, fire is also a herbivore, right? It, it eats plant material uh, and uh, just like a, a mammoth does. And so you know, all of the um, the different kinds of, you know, services, if you will, that a mammoth provides in its in its habitat, um, all of those become compromised or lost. And 
uh, if you imagine an ecosystem like a, a Jenga tower, you can you can think about pulling out different pieces, and depending on which piece you pull out, you might undermine the integrity of that Jenga tower or that ecosystem, you know, piece by piece until the thing collapses. So I think one of the most important things is. Um, you know, that, that I've learned in my research is that extinctions have consequences and looking at the natural experiments in extinction that we've gone through in the past, we can really help to understand how we can protect species today. It's, it's too late for the mammoths, but it's not too late for elephants or rhinos or some of the other large herbivores that we have now. Um, so I would say that's, that's an important part of the picture. Um, but you know, even with this emphasis on extinction, and I and I get it, I, I'm an extinction biologist, I research extinction, I think we often lose sight on survivors. And so one thing I like to remind people is that there are stories of loss in the fossil record, but there's also a lot of tremendous information about resilience and survival. Everything, every if you look out your window right now, everything that you see, every plant, every animal, um, every fungus, uh, it's they're all ice age survivors. Every single one of those made it through the tremendous upheavals uh, that Earth has gone through over the last couple million years, um, including us. Right, you know, we're we're perhaps the biggest upheaval at all of all, at least since the asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs. Um, and so, you know, I think. One of the things that's really exciting for me and some of the directions of my future work is to think about how we can use these stories of resilience as clues for how to help ecosystems survive what's coming in the future. So we should focus on loss, absolutely, but we should also try to understand what allows certain communities or species to thrive. So I have a question. Um, we hear about extinction and we hear about how many species in the modern era are, are going the way of extinction. But we don't hear so much about the practical uh, effect of it in a way that comes home to us. You know, we mm. hear about big cats dying off in various parts of the world and in the U.S. West. But we seldom have a direct economic or physical reaction or impact to the loss I mean, you might guess that big cats might control the animal supply of, uh, of uh, what would you call it, uh, animals that are undesirable, like groundhogs or something. But we, we hear about these species dying off a lot, but, but it never comes home to us that something tragic has happened. Why is that? a few reasons for that. I think one of them is that a lot of us don't have a strong connection to nature. We, um, you know, I was very fortunate to grow up in a lot of rural places and with, you know, parents who encouraged me to spend a lot of time outside. Um, you know, some of the best, uh, the, the best conservationists I know are hunters, for example, right? They're people who have spent a lot of time, which might sound counterintuitive, but if people who spend a lot of time outside, um, often have a deep appreciation for, uh, for the natural world. And, you know, they spend time in it. They, they understand it, they see it, um, they live with it or they work with it every day. And I think that that, you know, Pests. fostering That's those. That's the word I was thinking of. Pests. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and so, so, you know, often we, we have these perspectives that are informed by, you know, you know, if we live in a city, then we think of these animals as pests, right? And because they're, they have de detrimental impacts on us where we are. Um, but it's also important to remember that they, 
they do serve important functions. Um, they're they're part of a, a greater a greater tapestry, a greater whole. And for me, I think understanding our place in time, understanding where we are in the great timeline of of Earth's history, I think for me helps helps hammer that point home even more, right? So I could I could try to appeal to you and and say, well, these the black footed ferrets are are important because they um because they're cute. Okay, well maybe that doesn't work. Or um they're they're important because they serve an important function in the prairie. Um but you know I think another thing to remember is that um you know we, we say extinction is forever, um, which is still true, at least until until you know de-extinction and cloning becomes a reality but for now for now at least and and you know the near future extinction is still forever um and i just imagine this sort of endless tapestry that has extended all the way back to the first single-celled organisms um and and you imagine these threads that continue on all the way to the present and some of those threads have ended right we don't have any descendants of um you know say trilobites right uh there are certain lines or threads through through the timeline of earth that get cut and and they're they're done forever um but you know if you imagine all of these species like the black-footed uh, the black-footed ferret or, you know, manatees or whatever your favorite animal is, if you imagine that animal going extinct, you know, we're, we're snipping threads in this tapestry. There's no coming back from that. And so there's a certain inherent, to me, a certain inherent value in these species, not just in terms of what they do for us, but um, just because they're part of this great tapestry that has extended for 4 billion years. And uh, the more threads and colors are in that tapestry, the stronger it is, but also the more beautiful. And I want my kids and my grandkids and my great grandkids to be able to see as much of that tapestry as I have been able to. I'm still bitter that, you know, I came so close to being in a world with woolly mammoths, right? They were around until only about 3,800 years ago. And so. A project to uh, recover some woolly mammoths from their DNA because the DNA is still viable from 10,000 years ago. Yeah, so there there is a there there are a couple of labs working on this. Most notably is uh, George Church at Harvard. Um, it's it's going to be, well, I, for folks who are interested, I would definitely recommend checking out Beth Shapiro's book, How to Clone a Mammoth. It gets into the science of this and also the ethics and the feasibility. Um, I think it's less likely that we'll have a proper cloned mammoth in the sense of you know Dolly the sheep. Um, it's much more likely that we, what we'd really end up with is something like a transgenic elephant that's uh, got some spliced in mammoth genes that um, make the elephant more mammothy, like thicker mm-hmm. fur you know, a hemoglobin that can, in the blood that can tolerate colder temperatures, those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, so, and, uh, you know, again, at least until, until we make some pretty drastic changes, um, you know, when we cut that thread, that thread is cut forever. And, you know, arguably, even if we were to bring back a transgenic mammoth, um, or a transgenic elephant that was mammothy, um, you know, is that really a mammoth? Mammoths were matriarchal, they had, you know, complex cultures, just like modern elephants. They, they passed on information from generation to generation. They had social structures. Uh, All of those things don't really exist in a lab setting. And, you know, if you take a mammoth out of the, you know, out of the steppe tundra is, is it, and it's in a lab or in a zoo, you know, is that really something real? Um, The first step, once we learn how to do that, we might be able to help other species survive. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I think these raise really good 
good questions about conservation. Um, I, you know, often when I talk to people about this, they say, well, is it okay? You know, is it even right to bring back a woolly mammoth from extinction when elephants are dying off? Right. Like we have, we have to address these sort of, um, you know, the, the acute problems that we have now before we can, you know, get to the sort of longer term, I think moonshot ideas. Um, we have to figure out how to coexist with other species basically. Um, and I think that to me, that's the bigger problem than trying to figure out the scientific details of, of mammoth cloning or bringing back the dodo or the passenger pigeon, because, you know, if we're just going to shoot them out of the sky to extinction again, what have we really accomplished? You made me think of two new questions. Okay, so a great. lot of the curves we see, uh, CO2 in the atmosphere and sea levels, are on the exponential rise. Are species dying off and going extinct at a faster rate these days, or is that pretty much constant? So there's there is some good inform there's some good evidence that we do see an accelerated rate of extinction at least going back in the last four centuries, maybe even earlier. Um, and it's actually surprisingly difficult to get a handle on extinction rates. Uh, and that's, or, or biodiversity losses. And that's because we have no idea how many species we have on earth. Um, we have good estimates or we have okay estimates, but those estimates vary widely. And, um, a lot of people don't realize this, but there's a tremendous amount of uncatalogued biodiversity out there. And so it's actually surprisingly difficult using the tools that we have right now to figure out how many species we're losing because we don't even know how many species we have. And but we, the best data we have were, were for the groups that are well monitored. So groups like birds, um, there's you know there's some groups we've been able to study better than others um, for various reasons, um, you know. But for example, there are more beetles species of beetles than there are anything else on the planet um, for other animals at least, um, and that doesn't even get into the microbes, right? Um, but uh, we don't, you know, we don't have a good enough handle on that to really be able to say definitively what we're losing. But where we can where we do have a good handle on our biodiversity, you know, the data are clear that we do have an accelerated rate of extinction. There's always some background extinction that's natural. Um, that's just a normal natural process that happened. This has happened all throughout geological history. Um, but what's happening now is at a much, much faster rate to the point where some scientists have started to argue that we're entering the sixth mass extinction, you know, so, so an event that could, if we continue on this course, be on par with something like the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. Okay, my next question. Do we do, or do you, uh, any of your colleagues, do any ecological modeling on computers? We like do. Interaction yeah. between, say, insects. What would happen if all the ants went away? What would happen if all the wasps went away? I think, yeah, we, we, think we know what happens if the bees go away. We're in big trouble. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So these are, uh, these are models of, of ecological interactions or food web, food web models. Uh, there are a lot of different approaches. Um, we're actually doing some of this work right now at the La Brea Tar Pits, um, which is a really amazing fossil deposit in downtown Los Angeles. And it's a great place to do this work because we have so many different components of an ecosystem in one place, all the different plants and small mammals, big mammals, insects. Uh, so you can really try to build these kinds of food webs. And then once you have a model, you can, of, of, uh, that predicts the kinds of interactions and the, the structure of a community, you can start to do things like 
play with it. Like, okay, well, what happens if we pull this species out? How does that change the web? Does that undermine the resilience of that community? Okay, well, what if we do this one? What if we do this one? Um, So there's a lot of different approaches there. So we're trying to build tools uh, for these food webs that then could be applied to modern ecosystems because the nice thing about the tar pits is we actually know what did go extinct, right? We have a fossil record that tells us what was there and then what we lost. And so we can we can use that to validate our predictions. And once our models are solid, then we can kind of hand them off to other people who might be working in the Serengeti or in other places and say, all right, now you can use this to try to get a handle on, um, you know, the risks and, uh, and, and, the, and also potentially the resilience of your, of your modern day communities. But yeah, people do use these computer tools, um, to try to model ecosystems. Uh, we also do some dynamic vegetation modeling. So that's where you put in uh, different kinds of environmental data uh, and different kinds of ecological tolerances for, so say like this species of tree can handle these temperatures and it's got this fire sensitivity and uh, you know, these kinds of parameters that it enjoys. And then you can throw in CO2 and temperature and various other um, environmental variables, and then try to look at forest, try to predict forest communities through time. So we do some of that kind of modeling as well. And that basically can allow us to uh, fill in a picture for a habitat um, at a a site over time. And You know what I wish for? You never heard of Cosmos with Carl Sagan, right? Yeah, yeah. I wish for a series called Ecos, where you do the Mm -hmm. same thing with the ecology and take us through the computer models and visualization and virtual reality and show, show, show us in a cosmos-like format, what would happen if a certain species were to die off and what the impact would be, Mm. what the the models predict uh, based on current trends and so on. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? That would be amazing. I don't don't know if any of your listeners have a, you know, have have some money to throw at a project like that, but that would be pretty pretty fantastic. You could do that for us because you're a great communicator. Well, thank you. Yeah. So we don't have too much time left. I just have a couple more questions. So what do you think has been your most remarkable discovery? Hmm. I think, you mean in terms of like a, a concept or in, an individual? In your career as a whole, what, what, is, what stands out for you as something that was least expected and most remarkable and something you're proud of having discovered or something that surprised you or you thought was really cool? Yeah, I think I think my my biggest uh, scientific contribution kind of goes back to what I was telling you about with my very first uh, that very first email that I sent to my my the person who became my grad advisor at Wisconsin. Um, you know, up until that point, a lot of the people in my field felt that the big um, the biggest contribution or the biggest influence on these ecosystems of, at these timescales was climate change. And now there's a whole field of, of study where people are looking at the influence of these large herbivores. And so this idea that, um, that changes in, in the landscape could be a consequence, like big scale changes in an ecosystem could be a consequence of extinction rather than a cause of extinction was a big, I think, conceptual advance. And, um, so the work that I went on to do for my, my graduate work, um, I think played a really big role in advancing those ideas. And so, um, I'm just really proud of the fact that we, uh, that now people in my community think a lot about the role that um, that these animals have played in these landscapes, uh, even over these big t- time scales. All right, we're out of time. So uh, I want to close with any final thoughts you have, any last words you want to give to the listeners about extinction or climate change? I think I think the the thing I would I would 
just remind people is it, it's a really difficult time to be a person who cares about the earth right now. Um, there's often so much bad news or negativity. And, and, you know, right now, as I'm talking to you, there are awful, terrible wildfires in the West. And, you know, we see so many examples of the climate crisis and we hear so much bad news about the biodiversity crisis. Um, and I would just, you know, urge people who, you know, who are feeling really down about this, you know, just to remember that there are a lot of, a lot of us who are working on this all the time. We haven't given up. We, um, and, you know, I, I think there are, there are a lot of stories, as I said, of, of survival and resilience. So, you know, we may have lost the mammoths, but we still have the musk ox. And the sooner we act, the more we do now, um, the, you know, the more we can protect going forward. It's not too late. Um, you know, it'll always be worth acting on, on climate change and, uh, and biodiversity loss. It's never, it's, you know, if you, if you see a headline that says we've gone through a doorway or a threshold and it's too late to do anything, that's not true. It's hype. There's always a chance to, to, to make things better for the future. Cool. I want to thank you for taking us through your career and the work that you do. It's been a great story. Thanks for sharing with us. Thank you so much for, for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Tell the listeners how they can ask polite questions and reach out to you. <laughs> um, yes, polite questions, please. Um, I You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Jacqueline Gill. And uh, you can also uh, email me at Jacqueline.Gill uh, at Maine, M-A-I-N-E dot E-D-U. Great. Well, thanks again for joining me. It's been a wonderful show. I let it run long because you're such a great speaker. And you're such a fascinating topic to talk about. So thanks for doing that with me. Thank you so much. Folks, you've been listening to John Marcellaro and Dr. Jacqueline Gill, Ice Age ecologist on the Mac Observer's background mode. We'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm.